This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Cork Street Galleries. To find out more about the original home of the art world, go to corkstreetgalleries.com. Hello, I'm Ben Luke and welcome to a new podcast from the team behind the Week in Art from the Art Newspaper. This is A Brush With Michael Armitage and it's the first in a series of four conversations that I've had with painters in which we explore their work and their life through their cultural experiences. So that's the books they read, the music they listen to while they work, the rituals of their daily practice and of course we explore the artists that they admire whether that's artists from the renaissance or the medieval periods or the people that they know today, their friends, the people that they negotiate the art world with. So why painters? Well in more than a decade of being an art critic One of the things I've learned, one of the great things about contemporary art is that it can be made in literally any media. It can be made of anything at all. But I do have a huge soft spot for painting. And I think that's because it never ceases to surprise me. It never ceases to amaze me that however much I've looked at it and read about it and talked about it, it can still leave me speechless. It can still make me gasp. And I think the four painters that we're talking to in this series are indicative of how extraordinarily varied it is as a medium, even today. And I'm delighted that this first episode of the series features Michael Armitage. Michael is still a relatively young painter. He was born in 1984 in Nairobi, in Kenya, to a Kenyan mother and a British father. And he works between Nairobi and London today. And in fact, these two aspects of his identity hugely influence his work. He studied at the Slade School in London and then went on to the Royal Academy Schools where he graduated in 2010. And since about 2015, he's been a pretty major figure on the London scene and gradually rippling into a much more internationally renowned figure. And I think the moment for me where Michael really established himself as a major artist was at the Venice Biennale in 2019, where we saw two groups of work, as was the idea behind that Venice Biennale that each artist was represented by two bodies of work and with Michael he showed paintings on the one hand and ink drawings on the other and this showed how dexterous his hand was but also how he was able to work in very different scales and with these two media with great control and great imagination and it also summed up this real tension I think in his work which is between this wonderfully imaginative, rich, almost florid painterly style and this incredibly hard-hitting social commentary that you see in the work. So in those works in Venice in 2019 there were scenes that he'd witnessed at an opposition rally in the 2017 Kenya general elections and these were teeming with figures in ambiguous poses but wonderfully they also related to art historical paintings. And one of the qualities in Michael's paintings that most distinguishes him from other artists is that he uses this material called Lubugo bark cloth, which is made by the Buganda people in Uganda. He came across it at a tourist stall in Nairobi and wondered if it might be something that he could develop into a sort of painted surface and went on this extraordinary uh, lengthy process of trying to locate it and eventually uh, found a way to get hold of large enough quantities to paint on it and this whole process took quite some time but it became very much a sort of signature element in his work. Now 
he says today that he had been looking for a material which in some way could shift and relocate the work out of the Western canon, which of course he'd been immersed in in his studies in London, and reintroduce his East African cultural history. So in a way, his identity is writ large in his work. So at the beginning of our discussion, before Michael began talking about the artists and the cultural experiences that had defined his life and his work, Michael told me all about the Labugo bark cloth and what he discovered when he began using it. I think that's actually one of the things that was incredibly surprising as soon as I started looking into it was how global a material it was as well, you know, and how much it was traded. And one of the, um, when I was looking into the kind of the life of the material and how long it was would last, I was told that there are samples of this that's pulled from Inca temples. You know, there are people all across the world from you know, ancient Aboriginal cultures in Australia through to, you know, other parts of Southeast Asia, through to South America, through all over the African continent as well. And and that, that for me, again, was kind of, it felt like there was a sort of cultural truth to that, um, that however specific this thing was to me, it's actually a material that is basically whatever the people that use it make it to be which felt like that's what kind of culture does and culture is and also in a sense it's what taste is and and, and for me especially having had many different cultural influences in my own upbringing and having contradictory different ideas and cultures existing in the same space that kind of truth was interesting and felt like it was something that I had wanted for a long time to be part of my work. And is it also a sort of contradictory quality in terms of the imagery and language that, that collides on the surface of your paintings in the sense that there is this tension between abstraction and really quite hard-hitting figurative content? And, and, and that, there's that push and pull constantly, it seems to me, in your work between those two things. I, th- I think that the space that's, that is quite abstract and in, in times is almost geometric, that some of, the, some of the kind of, particularly the urban scenes that my paintings exist in, is very much derivative from an urban environment where flat planes, rectangular forms dominate. And that is, however non-specific it may seem, it's also the site of which public living goes on in. And I, I found it quite interesting then when trying to make work that isn't in an urban environment, how to deal with composition, because all of a sudden you're not given these very kind of what are really quite easy structures to to set something within. And then I, I would think of, for me, you know, artists like someone like Titian becomes really interesting because there there are very few kind of geometric points within his work that are used to make the composition interesting. If anything, they're just used to to be backdrops. And the thing that becomes really interesting is the kind of dynamics between the figures and the very weird spaces that he leaves between figures and the plays on scale of the figures that he has. And that that's that's kind of 
maybe a, 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 an ongoing consideration when when making when making the paintings is I suppose again you can talk about someone like Manet is thinking about the artifice of painting the artifice of the image the artifice of social positions social considerations and how that kind of links and how you can use that and then trying to use some sense of naturalism so that as if what you're representing is real with that becomes like for me certainly that's that's what I find as well as his language that's what I find interesting in the paintings of Manet is how he uses the abstract forms to tell you this is not real but then how he uses the representation to kind of tell you this is how it is you know and there's that 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 tension is really interesting to me um again as it seems to reflect what's beneath some of the things that one might consider to be natural and just the way that the world is it kind of really is a however formal a decision it is it's really a philosophical standpoint like it's 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 about a way of thinking you know and that that's that's something that i find kind of yeah pretty awesome that you can get that through a composition Right, so let's get to the first question that we're going to ask all our guests. You've already talked about a couple of big hitting painters there, but but who was the first artist whose work you loved? I, I don't know if I would say that I loved his work, um, but it troubled me, you know, in a way that I kept wanting to come back and see it. And that's a painter, a Kenyan painter called Meet Gishugu. And it's very strange because in a way it kind of represented everything that the society that I grew up in and the way I was told to behave wasn't. And there was something very kind of challenging about that and also very seductive. And it's, um, it's a painting that's extraordinarily crude and there's nothing that you would say is beautiful about it at all. But the image is very striking and it's, it's of this kind of lady that's wrapped around a kind of zebra figure and it's very pornographic. And there's a little poem that he's inscribed on the, I think it's on the right-hand side, um, which, which talks about lust and, you know, and it's got all these Oedipal undertones to it and about his mother. And it's it's so complicated. And I remember l- looking at it when I was probably about, you know, um, I must have been 10 or 11 and just wondering what on earth is this? And it was in a friend of mine whose parents, one was an artist and the other was a collector and a furniture designer. Um, his mother, who's the artist, is called Chilenga van Rampelberg, who also had a huge impact on me. Um, it was in their house. And I also thought, like, that is such a peculiar thing to want to live with and to have. But again, I kept coming back to it. And that that's actually the first... I should have t- taken that as a warning for the things that would become important to me that I probably wouldn't like them <laughs> at first, but there would be something compelling that just keeps you coming back or keeps me coming back. Um, yeah, so it would be that painting by Meek. And which historical painter do you turn to the most? Um, the most would have to be Goya. There, there are two experiences which I've had where like I you you know it's the sort of thing where 
you almost feel the earth move underneath you because what you're looking at is such a kind of trauma to your imagination and to what you thought was capable and was was able to be made in painting. And the first time I ever had that was seeing Goya's black paintings in the Prado. And that that room just changed me in, in that moment. You know, and it's it's one of those things where it wasn't a slow change, it was immediate. And and I I I just haven't come across an artist well, I don't, there isn't an artist, another artist like Goya. There isn't another artist that paints like Goya that can do the things that he does, which, quite frankly, should be terrible. Um, but they're utterly convincing and moving. And he speaks about society. He reflects on, you know, very difficult aspects of human nature. He goes into the imagination in a way that, in its kind of material form, is is as is as kind of visceral as the images that he makes and it's I've, yeah there's there's just something in that which made me think like geez painting can do a lot you know the black paintings the the, the textures of the paint in those paintings given when they're made that it's just an incredibly daring way of using the stuff right unbelievable like i mean and again, it comes down to that thing where you really see with, with artists that have been able to get themselves into an internal position to translate what they're going through and thinking about into paintings, which is incredibly difficult. But with artists like that, you you see someone's entire philosophy and their attitude and way of being. And with Goya, it's the exact same. You know, you're there's something immense about looking at whether it's those paintings or whether it's looking through one of his albums of etchings about being in the presence of that because you you understand so much about somebody you know and you understand so much about his preoccupation and kind of this kind of kindness that he must have to to reflect upon other people like that let's talk about living artists which living artists do you most admire yeah, so the list of living artists is very long for me, but I suppose a few, and and all all for really quite different reasons. So, some for their work and how they are, and you know the, their subjects. But Julie Moretu is somebody who I hugely admire. There's something in kind of her thinking and this understanding of the history of a mark and the history of a language. And and what how you can then use that to speak about really really diverse and varied histories and socio political issues and so on and it it's kind of put together in an abstract form which is just in her case it's just it's it's so deep like the images have so much going into them. Um, and uh, another artist would be Doris Salcedo. Um, I mean she sends chills down my spine every time I see a a piece of work by her. Painters and and other artists, like someone like Chris Ophelia, a huge fan of his work, a couple of friends who've had a big impact on me and, um, you know, artists like Nick Hatful, Nick Goss, Lynette Yidamboyake, Peterson Kimwadi, William Kentridge, Fahad Berkey and an an artist you know like i could i could really go on because that there's also something um i would say in all the artists that i've mentioned there's a kind of real concern for narrative and um and a wider society um 
in some way in their practice. And that's something that I've always been interested in. I'm always interested in terms of conversations with artists because there's this balance, isn't there, that when you talk to an artist, there's there's um, there's a sort of tacit understanding of that sort of very private nature of the making of art. But also uh, you can share stuff, share share experiences. And I wonder, do you do you tend to find yourself talking about the experience of being an artist almost more than you talk about specific details of works? Um, I would say we almost never talk about the experience of being an artist. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think, um, if anything, I've, I feel like that's the kind of the unsaid thing that, like, from the beginning, you're kind of on 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 equal ground like that, where where um, there's there's very often a respect for the endeavor, you know, and for the life chosen, and also the absurdity of the life chosen, um, you know. And and so like that, I feel like in a way that's almost an unsaid an unsaid aspect of conversations that I have with other artists. There are there are obviously points where if you're having something particularly challenging come up or different happen to do with life or career or work that you would then talk to other artists about it. But the majority of the time, we actually often talk about um, work work that we've seen of other people really um, and yeah problems and ideas around that as well as life in general you know so which artists do you have in reproduction sort of pinned to your wall then yeah also another quite long list um <laughs> but um i i have a few that have kind of sometimes they change as well but i have a few like i've got a little image of a Cezanne painting piero della francesca um iba Indaye, goya franz hals gauguin degas titian Ophelia, Daumier, like it, and it's um, it's a really evolving and revolving kind of images that I put up. Some last a long time, like the image that I have of the Piero della Francesca is a very faded, faded postcard at the moment. Yeah, probably need to update that. I'm intrigued by that because is looking at historic and and great artists at times a weight on your shoulders and at others an inspiration or or in other words can you sort of turn that tap on and off in a way in terms of how much you look back at them or do you are they sort of a constantly positive presence or can or can the weight of influence sometimes become a negative i think the thing that's difficult is if you try and emulate what they do. And I think that's really, um, that's where it would become problematic. But it's only through having tried to do that in some situations. And also just through looking at, you know, at the points in a, a lot of the kind of greats, you know, that are the kind of classics, where the things that make their work kind of memorable are often the things that one would consider to be bad or to be like, you know, not done very well, or there, there's something that's so distinct to every person's hand, that the great artists, you see that often, you know, and you see a lot of good painting where you there's, there's very little evidence of the person who's made it. And it doesn't really stay with you. But then, you know, again, that's where someone that, like Goyer is interesting, because I mean, some of those are horrendous images, and they're just like in terms of how they're made and how it's drawn and nothing fits and nothing works 
but they're just there forever. You know, you're, you're, you can't, once you see it, it's in your mind and it's not going anywhere. Um, so, so like that, I think historical, for, for me, I find it very difficult to differentiate between historical and contemporary work. I just have stuff that I like and that I see as interesting and I, I don't have a problem when it was made. So th that kind of weight of history and there's, I suppose, that famous quote by Guston of the artist leaving the studio one by one as you work. Like that, there's a truth in that, you know, because at the end of the day, them leaving the studio is when you stop trying to emulate something that you've seen that's interesting that they do. But in general, there are so many points in a painting where it's good to also have help um, and it's good to be able to look at what other people have done to be able to make some steps forward. And like that, having the presence of other artists around, I like personally, I find incredibly helpful. I've always found it really courageous that you're not afraid to directly quote great art in your own work, in the sense that in your show in Venice last year, there was a painting which it seemed to me directly referred to Titian's Great Assumption in the Ferrari. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, that is one of the all-time great paintings and I, and I love the fact that he were the sort of tentacles of Titian reaching forward into the 21st century from the 16th you know but you've got to do this in a sort of well tell me about that experience I think it's like for me the point of reference is probably from a narrative position like I don't think I would choose I wouldn't look to another artist to quote unless there was something that I wanted in the narrative of the painting from my position. Like, I'm happy for people to read whatever they want in my work, but from my position where I'm trying to build an image and trying to, to build a narrative, it's like, it's like how a mark has a history, an image has a history, a type of image making has a history and can lead and inform the way that you look at a work. And so, so like that, for me, it's, it's really like a tool more than... I never saw that as a kind of homage to Titian or something like that. Um, it was more that it would be useful if I took some of that, you know, to kind of undermine the image that I was presenting and shift the kind of reading of the image to, to tell a fuller story and to try and explore the complexities of the situation I was interested in while making the painting. That's right, because it was it was it was telling a story relating to a very specific moment where you saw a rally in Kenya for an election, right? Exactly that. And the point of departure for that specific painting was coming across these guys who were in, visually incredibly striking, but they were kind of, they were a troop that were at every single rally. They were a troop that were there to bring the energy, to bring the atmosphere. But not only that, they were there for when things turned violent to be the guys on the front line against the police. So, so they really operated in, in many kind of different ways. And the fact that they were a paid troop to be there and a couple of them had, or, or people that were involved in rallies had been shot and died, you know, and presented as martyrs, that these guys were there and were paid to be there and were effectively spokesmen for this higher higher power basically was interesting to me because it really colored the idea of a martyr and it colored the idea of support and politics in a way that's probably actually more true you know 
And that sounds like a very cynical, cynical position. But for me, when thinking about those paintings, it wasn't really about a political position, but what you're giving over as a person who supports, you know, and, and for me, that painting was about not only the people that were represented, but the viewer and, and my position as somebody who would take that person as a martyr on face value, you know, and, and so, so like that, it became really important to have this relationship with altarpieces and, you know, with, with Christian imagery. Um, and that sort of painting. This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Cork Street Galleries. Cork Street lies at the centre of the highest concentration of galleries in London and remains the spiritual and cultural home of the global art world, where the careers of some of the greatest artists of our time were launched. Cork Street Galleries is an initiative by the Pollen Estate. To find out more about the original home of the art world, go to corkstreetgalleries.com. So let's move on to museums then. Which museum or gallery do you visit most frequently? Um, the National Gallery in London um, is, you know, it's, it's re- relatively easy for me to get to and has a, a crazy collection. Um, but yeah, I, when, when I've got it, particularly when I've got issues with paintings, I go to the National Gallery. Does it make a difference seeing them in the flesh as opposed to seeing a reproduction? Uh, yes, H- hugely actually. It makes a difference seeing it in the flesh. It makes a difference the time of day that you look at something. It makes a difference the mood that you're in. Um, it makes a difference the, you know, the the kind of if I'm going there with a with a particular painting problem in mind, the sort of problem that I'm looking for help with. But but to see something in the flesh, there there just is no comparison. It's mainly because of an image. Once the thing is is flattened out, there's something impenetrable about a painting like that. There's something almost infallible. It's perfect. As soon as you see something in the flesh, you know, the the hand is there. The slip-ups are there. The kind of corrections, the history of the painting is there. Image making is one aspect of painting, but painting's called painting for a reason. It's it's made out of paint, you know, and it's and it has the the history of trying to build it up. And it's much more than just the image. It's the surface, you know, it's the alterations, it's time. Um, And to be able to sit with a painting and to experience the time that it's taken through following the marks, through following the changes is like, especially as a painter, is more informative than than you could imagine. Yeah, looking at images is actually not that helpful unless they're amazing quality uh, reproductions, which most aren't. Do you ever find that you go to the National Gallery with the intention of seeing a particular painting and end up actually diverted on a tangent looking at somebody else? Yeah, always, always, always. Um, you know, and there's always something somewhere that that catches your eye and is a little bit more incongruous than you remembered it or something's shifted or um yeah there's there's another artist that did something and kind of gives you a way in like um one of the times I was I specifically had in mind that I wanted to look at Cezanne's bathers um and I was thinking of the build up of color 
um, for a totally different painting that I was working on. And to get there, I had to do, I couldn't go the normal route that I, I usually go to get in. So I had to go through a slightly more circuitous route that took me through the Velasquez room. And there's this Velasquez, which I think is like a Madonna's or something like that, standing on this globe thing. And that actually really shifted a different painting that I was working on um, called Hope uh, and changed how I, st I started to think about the various elements in that painting working. So, yeah, I'm always, always getting sidetracked in there. Too many good things. Let's talk about literature. Which books or writers do you return to? The the one that kind of is a constant presence for me is a Kenyan writer called Gugiwa Thiongo. And that's also because I grew up w with him. You know, the first plays that I saw were his plays. Um, he had this series that of like sort of African authors that a lot of schools had in their um in their in their libraries and were in all the sort of bookshops and things like that. And so he he's kind of he he's a constant presence. And also how he talks about um vernacular language and how important it is to write in vernacular languages. Um, and that that for me is really interesting, and especially as he's also writes in in English as well, you know, um, and his ability to use like very different stories to to take on like quite heavy issues, um, sometimes very pointed socio political issues, and also he's just writes beautiful, very easy to read, very interesting books. Um, you know, an, another writer that, particularly his book Antils of the Savannah, that that had a big effect on me was Chinua Achebe. Um and he's someone that I go to. Metamorphosis of it is something that I I return to again and again, and it feels, you know, remarkably f familiar. Um, the first time I read it, and you know, uh, and read parts of it, I should say, but. I'm a huge fan of Marquez, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. And the, the other writer who more recently has become a kind of companion within my own imagination and head and way of thinking about painting and place is Yvonne Adiambo Awar, another Kenyan, a young Kenyan writer um, who wrote this book, Dust. And, and that again was interesting to me because in this day and age, they're stories that I just hadn't come across very often. And she, her writing is very dense and full of images and images of places that for me have a real emotional resonance as well. So yeah, she, she's been in my mind a lot, actually. It's interesting hearing you talking about that because it makes me wonder about how much of the literature actually affects the imagery you use and the way you work, you know, because it's obvious to say painting has influenced the way that your paintings appear. But do you sense a sort of direct influence of the of the things you read in in your imagery and your language? I would put literature and music in the same category in that sense. So I'm going to not answer your question and actually talk about music instead. When I was thinking about quite formal aspects of building up a painting, colour, uh, narrative, uh, kind of subject interests, the biggest influence I had was probably Sukhu's music from Congo. And um, one particular musician who I was listening to a lot at the time 
was this guy called Franco and his group was Lutipok Jazz. There was something in these kind of like endless, endless sort of 15 minute pop songs that are just like entrancing and beautiful and, um, you know, you just can't get enough and you, you have such a huge sense of place, which, which is interesting because there's such a, a variety of places in the history of that music, whether it's South America, you know, the Caribbean, whether it's Congo, but you still feel like you're... I kept having these really strong, vivid images of being where the music is from, somewhere like Kinshasa, which I've never been to. But it felt very much like it has a place. And not only that, when you listen to it and you're like me and you don't understand the words and you're just in basically the abstract beauty of, you know, of the melody of the whole, the whole thing, when you find out what he's singing about, and it's like the most horrific situations and, you know, like completely challenging social norms, you know, re- really brave, really courageous subjects to be taking on given the risk that it would mean to such a public figure. Like for me, that that made me think, well, you know, can, can I do that in painting? And of course, there are, are examples that, that I could then go to in painting where people do use language in a similar way. But it felt like it was more contradictory because in painting often, you know, you talk to somebody about a difficult, dark subject and they talk about dark paintings. You know, it isn't like using beauty was used in the same way as they were doing in that music as Franco did. And for me, that was a real kind of, you know, like it it stuck with me for a long time and has affected decisions I've made in my paintings continuously, really. And tell me about the you know, having music on in the studio, because I'm always I'm also interested in, you know, when you begin a painting, is your concentration very different to the, to the final strokes that you make on a painting? And therefore, would the sounds that you have around you when when you're making those first marks differ from those that are present when you're when you're completing a work? Yeah. And I think I think that's one of the things I enjoy about making paintings over a long period of time is that it allows for all those different things to come in and be part of quite literally the bigger picture but music is is good sometimes I get into a kind of I get stuck on something for a long time I listened to an album by Tumani Diabate um, on repeat probably for the best part of three years or something and I had a similar a similar issue with an album by a, a, a group called Cluster and and th- those two really stuck with me but it do- it does help kind of put you in a certain in a certain frame of mind and it also gives you a physical energy um, sometimes but then th- there's always certainly for me there are kind of different stages throughout a day and the hardest stage to reach is kind of like this magic hour where I don't really know how long, you know, t- time goes on for. I don't know what's going on. It just happens. And and things happen in the painting which feel like very far away from my hand and my consideration and immediate. Um, but that is never to do with the, the music. It's just, it's, there's almost like a point of distraction where this thing's been there and then it leaves and you're just in that moment. And that's not to say that that's necessarily more 
important than all the rest of the times where it's much more methodical and building up and reflecting upon a painting. But it certainly is a very difficult place to reach, you know, and um, I, I'm always, I, and it's also the sort of thing that you only realize once it's happened that you were there. That That's definitely a kind of magic point. And for a long time, I thought music was the thing that took me there, but then it really isn't. Um, it's just a, a form of shutting things out. So which other media influence your work? I, to be honest, I'll look at anything, anything that has a good, a good story or a good, decent image, anything that helps me, I'll, I'll, I'll look at it and use it. Yeah. I was intrigued that you looked at Twitter sometimes to, to, you know, something as apparently trivial as Twitter, but of course, imagery on Twitter is, is, is one of its most powerful tools, right? Yeah. You know, like that, that was generally I've ended up on social media by mistake, you know, and, um, and on the sort of images, the images that I've found have often been by mistake. I remember like quite, quite early on when I started using, um, Instagram, for example, I posted and there was a beach that I was on and I put in a, a hashtag of the beach and mistakenly I clicked the beach and it came up with a with a beheading from um from southern Somalia and it it, it completely I was doing this over breakfast and it completely just threw me it was it was absolutely horrific it's one of the most horrific things I've ever seen in my life and I just I was thinking about the kind of that that kind of way of receiving images and the way that it it's not not about a tribalism but the the kind of politics of something which is seemingly social and ever present and how kind of like a fragile space that is was super super apparent and in a way the points at which i've found images on instagram have either been things that someone sent me directly or it's been by mistake and i've i've never used that image i didn't record the image i didn't record that moment but that kind of like quick fracture that happened in the kind of that that space it gave me a sort of very quick insight and it's such a well documented thing but into the 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 fragility of of that form of consumption and th- that it's on twitter or instagram is almost irrelevant but the fact that it's made their images made for speed um is interesting you know and then you have the difference between looking at something when you're in a different country where you have different levels of acceptance on what you can and can't post and different things that will hold someone's attention. And that often, you know, at home, it's much more visceral um, than it would be over here. I'm sure you can find stuff here as well, but it's it's not in common circulation. Um, and that also for me is interesting because it's a reflection on the potency of image and it's a reflection on people's circumstance. Now, do you have a go-to paint colour when you reach an impasse in your work? No. <laughs> I, try, I try to change it as much as I can. Um, yeah, I've, I feel very aware of re- repetition like that um, in the same way that I, I don't like 
the idea of working on an image repeatedly, you know, doing several versions of the same image. It doesn't do it for me. And so I'm I'm always trying more or less successfully, I think, to to give myself a different different challenge of resolving a painting. Howard Hodgkin once said that he'd love to be an artist who worked in series but simply couldn't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I second that. That's <laughs> Is there a discipline in your daily working life that you would you see almost as a ritual? I, the only thing I I would say that I do is have to get up early. You know, if if I if I want to work, I've got to get up early. I'm a morning person, and um, I like to take my time as well. <laughs> um, you know, and j- just to have have that sense of peace of mind that a morning mornings give you. Um, that 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 would be it but otherwise you know love a coffee and i love to sit and think <laughs> uh if you could live with one work of art what would it be uh titian's pieta great choice yeah that's a it's an outrageous painting i saw it i saw it for the first time in venice um last year and i was actually going around with um with julie moretu and she 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 introduced me to it because she was like you just you, you will not believe this thing and wow I mean geez that's a painting and there, there was something that you said earlier about the tentacles of Titian reaching into the twenty first century where th- that painting is like looking at the entire history of painting both that followed it and and what led to it at one moment and I don't know any other painting that does that and there's so there's such a huge variety of language an approach to to the body to abstraction to um to telling a story to 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 what paint can do as well you see artists from you know de Kooning Rembrandt Degas um Goya, you see everybody in that in that painting, and then you see the artists that were before him, you know, and and it's 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 the most astounding single painting, almost for that reason. I don't really, I don't really care that much for the image, you know, like, you know, I I, I wouldn't I wouldn't have the image around, but as a painting, it's just out of this world. Um, Again, it's something that shouldn't work. The kind of lack of uniformity of language across the whole thing should not hold together. Um, but it does, and it feels like it's always been that way. And it's it's a strange, strange painting. It sort of seems so extraordinary that that's the last painting as well. As a parting shot, <laughs> that's, that's one hell of a painting. Yeah. God, can you imagine? Yeah, I mean, and and the way he his paintings built to that moment as well, you know. Um, there, there's this extraordinary show of um, of 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 group of Titian paintings at the National Gallery, and and it's incredible just seeing the shifts in language. And there's something about that Pieta which holds his entire life's like learning of painting in that. And like you said, that that you would leave that, you know, to sit above your grave forever it's a bonkers idea it's and that feels of its time and i don't i don't know if something like that could happen again or what form it would take if it did happen again
So the last question, what's art for? <laughs> what I would say like maybe is for me, what art does, it shows you that across millennia that the human experience is remarkably consistent. The considerations of artists is very, very similar when you look at what what you know what what people make and are interesting interested in, and that at one point is it's it's an alarming idea and quite a scary thought, but it's also extraordinarily comforting because you are never alone, and and it's also something that kind of lives within the imagination like that, and that's something that is so personal, and at times kind of can be troubling, but also a, a kind of a, a source of total pleasure. The imagination can be something that is understood and experienced by so many people over such a long time, and it come back to the same things again and again. Like for me, I, f I find that such an extraordinary and kind of um, liberating position that being an artist allows me to live within that space and make things that kind of live within that space. You know, it's the sort of thing that, the, for me, if, if I think about the absurdity of sitting and making a painting and whatever, whatever the endeavor is, like there's something in that that would almost justify <laughs> any absurdity to, you know, and, and provide a, a space for me. That's fantastic. Michael, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. You can see Michael's work as part of the exhibition Radical Figures at the Whitechapel Gallery in London until the 30th of August. And Paradise Edict, whose exhibition at the Haus der Kunst in Munich, opens on the 4th of September. Also, the Nairobi Contemporary Arts Institute, which Michael set up this year with Ayako Bertoli, will be collaborating with the Haus der Kunst for a show called Mawili Akili Naurojo, a look at figurative painting in Kenya from the 1960s through to the 1990s, and that will run alongside Michael's show in Munich. Michael's also produced an edition called Dream and Refuge, which is in aid of health, feeding and cultural support initiatives during the coronavirus pandemic. The edition is available through Michael's gallery, White Cube, at whitecube.com. Also at whitecube.com until the 16th of August is Another's Tongue, an online exhibition of Michael's ink drawings of people and landscapes in East Africa. And that's it for this episode. Please subscribe to A Brush With and do give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts if you've enjoyed it. You can find us on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. And just a reminder that you can listen to the full archive of our other podcasts at the Art Newspaper, The Week in Art, wherever you get your podcasts. More than 100 episodes, many of them featuring interviews with artists, from David Hockney to Chabala Lassell. Do subscribe to The Week in Art to be notified about any new episodes. Production, editing and sound design on a brush with are by David Clack, and the producers of the Art Newspaper podcasts are Julia Mihauska and Amy Dawson. Huge thanks to Michael Armitage, and do join us for the next episode. See you then. This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Cork Street Galleries. To find out more about the original home of the art world, go to corkstreetgalleries.com.